everyone. Welcome to, or welcome back, to Pit Perspectives. I'm your host, Jillian, and right now I'm coming at you from Davis Library, a regular UNC student's humble abode and a scary foreign territory for some athletes here on our campus. Student athletes undoubtedly bring a lot to our campus. I mean, money, entertainment, scooters and backpacks. But do they also bring anything to our classrooms? Or are their contributions only on the field? And if their contributions are only on the field, is that the fault of the students or is it the fault of the administration? Uh, no, student athletes are not taking advantage of. I'll die on that hill. I don't think they should get paid. You're a student, dude. Go, go to class, seriously. Um, yeah, I think that student athletes, like anybody else in our school, are exploited a lot. The, the commodification of people in that way really can, can mess with, with people. And I don't think that basketball and football athletes are given the same academic resources to succeed if they don't go pro. If you're new here, Pitt Perspectives is a student-run podcast here at UNC aimed at building a sense of understanding in the student community by sharing candid, anonymous student opinions on important social topics. This week, we present to you a two-part series on student-athletes. Last week, we took to the pit during lunch to talk to you about athletics here at UNC, and part one, which you are listening to now, will cover the exploitation of student-athletes, and part two covers the glorification of student-athletes. If this episode leaves you wanting to learn more, check out the second part and get the full story. This episode is meant to explore how the stereotypes about athletes not going to class may not be the fault of the athlete. And this is one of those times where you really need to just trust me, because I'm going to begin explaining this by telling you the story of an academic scandal here on our campus. UNC as an athletic powerhouse certainly has not been immune to scandals. In November of 2011, the Raleigh News and Observer began reporting on an alleged cheating scandal that occurred during the 2004-2005 school year, which also happens to be a year that the men's basketball team won the national championship. The scandal was centered around bogus paper classes, classes that required zero participation or attendance from students, a majority of which were in the School of African American Studies and generally administered by Deborah Crowder, who has since retired and denied any role in the scandal. The classes often never actually met, and all students were required to do the entire semester was write one paper. In the ESPN special, Outside the Lines, Rashad McCants, the second leading scorer on the team that won the 2005 national title, said tutors wrote his papers for him. And remember that those papers were the only things he had to do for each class. McCants also said he even made the dean's list that spring without attending any of his classes, which he fittingly received straight A's in. He said advisors and tutors who worked with the basketball program steered him to take the paper classes within the African American Studies program. Former football head coach John Bunting admitted to his knowledge of these classes, and they were used across football and basketball as a ploy to keep players eligible. One report finds over 3,000 athlete enrollments in these courses, but this is likely an underestimate. It may seem surprising that there has been little punishment for such an egregious act, but the NCAA actually ruled in 2017 that UNC will not be penalized by them. 
It's funny because the NCAA did not dispute that UNC was guilty of running one of the worst academic fraud schemes in college sports history, but they said that because no rules were broken, there was no threat to UNC's standing or the titles they won during the years that these paper classes were happening. And I know, I just said the NCAA said no rules were broken, but like literally that is what they said. So the NCAA only has the power to govern over institutions under NCAA guidelines and doesn't have any legitimacy to step into questioning the academic validity of classes being offered by a school. Greg Senke, commissioner of the Southeastern Conference who led the panel in this discussion, said the NCAA defers to its member schools to determine whether academic fraud occurred, and ultimately, the panel is bound to making decisions within the rules set by this membership. He concluded that while student-athletes likely benefited from the paper courses, the information available in the record did not establish that the courses were solely created, offered, and maintained as an orchestrated effort to benefit student-athletes. So there's some discussion that these classes were technically available to other students. And he admitted to being troubled by UNC's shifting positions on what to call academic fraud. But in the end, the scandal kind of just went away. And it's really likely that the 2005 men's basketball team participated in few academic activities during their championship year. But the title still holds. Today at UNC, it's hard to say what academic standards students on the basketball and football teams are held to. In 2017, after UNC made the Final Four during March Madness, there's a Snapchat video of Luke May, who made the game-winning shot, walking into his 8 a.m. Busy 101 lecture on Monday morning. Earlier this month, though, in 2022, it was announced that UNC player Anthony Harris would be unavailable in games for the rest of the season, but the reason wasn't disclosed. Harris is still going to be practicing with the team, which has spurred rumors that his academics have deemed him ineligible to play, although this hasn't been confirmed. In recent years, the talk of student-athlete academics has shifted more to focus on whether athletes are pushed to leave school on the back burner and place their sport atop all else. And if this is true, is it exploitation? I personally think that college athletics should not be the industry that it is. It's not pro-students that aren't student-athletes. And it's certainly not pro-student-athletes, right? They're gaining an education so that they can wake up extremely early every day, even on Thanksgiving, and act as a pawn, more or less, in the game that UNC is a big player in, which is college athletics, right? UNC is making money. Students are not making money. Like, the men's yeah, basketball players, right, they get, like, a full ride. Oh, you get a full ride, and you're going to play basketball. How awesome. You're going to have all this clout. You're paying back that full ride. And they're making so much more money for the university, and they're losing the social life that they would have at UNC and the academic rigor that they might desire because they're giving a lot of time to the sport. I don't know why. I was thinking, like, bro, I'm not good at this shit. Yeah, I, like, wish student-athletes had it better. Um, yeah, I think that student-athletes, like anybody else in our school, are exploited a lot. They generate a lot of revenue for the school, but they only get a fraction of it through 
uh, free tuition and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that they should be compensated more. How there are a lot of college athletes who can't even pay for groceries, and the NCAA is kind of corrupt because they kind of take advantage of them, and there are a bunch of I. I kind of likened it to like when a genie is like, <laughs> here are three wishes, yeah. and they use the loophole to not really give you what you want, because mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of athletes who, if they're injured, they're like kind of pushed out of the program, and they lose their scholarship and stuff, so, yeah. The question of exploitation comes out of the structure of college sports that reflects a long-standing system of economic, political, social, and cultural coercion producing what some call an intercollegiate athletic industrial complex. The base of this complex can be mostly explained by the NCAA's 20-hour rule. The 20-hour rule is a set of guidelines that governs how many hours student-athletes are allowed to spend on their sport each week. It's pretty simple. So the rule states that a student athlete's participation in accountable athletically related activities shall be limited to a maximum of four hours per day and 20 hours per week. And all countable athletically related activities shall be prohibited during one calendar day per week, also known as their off day or a rest day. And even if this were strictly followed, that's 20 hours a week or four hours a day that students don't get to spend doing student things. But the 20-hour rule has turned into 30 and 40 hours, as seen in NCAA surveys brought to light by a lawsuit filed by two former UNC athletes. A self-reporting survey from 2010 shows men's sports averaging 32 hours a week and women's sports averaging 33 hours a week. 12 years later, the numbers are similar. Because they're putting up academic responsibility and that. I mean, I know somebody, you know, I know people saying they have 20, 30 hour practice weeks. I mean, that, there's literally, there's a lot, you know, that goes into that. Coaches tell students that they have optional practices that are really mandatory, but technically can't be counted towards their hours. Or athletes may be meeting with training staff, individually going over film, doing rehab, or getting to practice early. Additionally, The mental time commitment fits in nowhere in the rules. I mean, it's immeasurable. But for something you're putting 30 to 40 hours a week into, it's really hard to have energy left to think about other things, like schoolwork. Specific research on basketball and football finds that players spend less than eight hours a week on academics outside of class, such as writing papers, studying, getting tutored, or working on group projects. Within the college sports industry, this is kind of an expectation. There's a 2017 CBS Sports article that calls Stanford tailback Bryce Love's decision to attend a summer school class rather than a media day a dangerous precedent. That is, the article called putting school before athletics a dangerous precedent. Research focusing on football and basketball has also revealed racial concerns as black athletes make up a large portion of student athletes. At Power 5 institutions, only 5.7% of all students are black, but 55.9% of basketball players are black and 55% of football players. At some schools, like Texas A&M, for example, numbers are much higher, like 80 to 90%. These students sometimes fall victim to the you chose to be here argument, And for some of them, and for students of all race, 
athletic scholarships are sometimes the only path to attending college. So sure, they made the choice to be there, but if that means they have to practice 40 hours a week, that's what they have to do. Sociologist Billy Hawkins has labeled the phenomenon as a plantation mentality. That is, a bunch of old, rich white men make millions of dollars off the unpaid labor of young black men and women. The plantation mentality, also sometimes alluded to sharecropping, is played off by the NCAA's insistence on amateurism which technically is supposed to ensure that student-athletes are students first and are therefore not held to professional athletic standards. For years, though, colleges have made billions of dollars from basketball and football, the biggest revenue sports, which also happen to be predominantly Black teams and have low graduation rates. The ideal of amateurism is a little foggy if students aren't getting degrees, because that doesn't make it look like they're putting their studies first. As shared by Rashad McCants, though, athletes are pushed by coaches and advisors in the opposite direction, and the failed 20-hour rule makes it even harder to focus on academics. So this is where the general hypothesis for exploitation comes from. From 2019 to 2020, the gap between graduation rates for white and black student-athletes increased from 15.6% to 16.3%. And keep in mind that these black athletes make up a majority of revenue sports. A 2018 report from USC found that just over 55% of black male athletes graduated within six years, compared to 60% of all black male undergrads. 69.3% of all student-athletes, and 76.3% of all undergrads. That means that Black male student-athletes, the ones that are employed by the so-called plantation and who generate the most revenue, are also the ones gaining the least out of their hard work. For some Black athletes, athletic scholarships are the only path to college. But it's not a path that ends in an actual college degree. And so I'm not sure where it really leads, or if it ends favorably. In terms of, like, the degrees that you, I mean, just graduating from a degree from here gives you a lot. So the ability to, if if they choose, like it says, basketball and football, if they do choose to get a degree from here, football or basketball doesn't work out, they definitely are going to be well off. But the question is then, is somebody really going to risk their career, risk their body for four years trying to play, and then get get uh, get a degree? In a UMass Amherst study, researchers also found that subjects with the most racial biases measured on a racial resentment scale were the ones most opposed to paying college athletes. Oftentimes, people argue that they don't need to be paid because they're getting a free education. But we've kind of debunked that, right? They're not really getting a free education. They're getting their tuition paid for, but having your tuition paid for and actually learning and experiencing college are very different things. And so the next myth is that athletes don't need to be paid because it allows them to eventually go pro. But the exploitation of college athletes cannot be shoved under the door with the ruse that their payoff is making it to a professional league. Less than 2% of college football players get into the NFL and only 1.2% of college basketball players get drafted into the NBA. 
These aren't really the numbers that are causing problems, though. The issue arises with statistics, like how 76% of men's basketball players think they have a shot, even though it's just that 1.2% that make it. That probably means that 76% of players are going through college thinking they don't need a plan B. They don't need to focus on professional resources and career development. And I don't think that basketball and football athletes are given the same academic resources to succeed if they don't go pro. A lot of them focus all of their academic careers trying to go pro, and that's just not realistic. So I think we need to do a better job in helping them prepare for a future professionally. I feel like all I really know about it is that post-college <laughs> career opportunities for student athletes are hard and often very like exclusive like the numbers of people who actually go on to play professional are, are so small this discussion took an interesting turn in june 2021 when the ncaa made the decision to allow college athletes to benefit from their own name image and likeness also known as nil NIL had the possibility to answer the call for compensation for athletes, but whether it's really done that is not clear. NIL is in full effect for athletes here at UNC. A local Durham restaurant called The Dankery launched a program for college athletes to become what they call dank athletes, and they've sponsored UNC women's soccer players Macy Bell and Maggie Pierce and field hockey player Cassie Sumfest. All of the athletes were paid to post a picture with the owner of the Dankery with hashtag ad in the caption. Cassie Sumfest also works with Fabletics and has posted content for them pretty regularly. Quarterback Sam Howell signed a guaranteed six-figure NIL deal with Super Glow trading cards back in August. And six figures is not a reasonable expectation for many athletes, but top figures in college sports have been projected to make literally millions of dollars. Paige Weckers, a college basketball player at UConn, was the first college athlete to sign with Gatorade and could actually earn a million dollars from endorsements. The key thing with NIL though, especially when talking about compensation, is that it's not automatic or guaranteed by any means, and it's also completely unrelated to how much work athletes put in, or how good they actually are at their sport. In order for NIL to work, athletes often have to actively pursue sponsorships, and they have to be active on social media. And I'm sure we've all learned that having a big social media following sometimes has nothing to do with how good a person is at something. Cameron March, a women's golfer from Washington State University, attended a congressional NIL hearing and brought to attention how as a female athlete of color in a small sport, golf, her opportunities through NIL weren't even close to what others could earn. Additionally, she discussed how the pressure to use social media to profit from NIL could exacerbate mental health issues and anxiety caused by things like using Instagram, especially for athletes who just don't want to be influencers. Athletes came to college to get an education, get a degree, and be athletes. They didn't necessarily come to college to be recognized on the street or grow their social media platforms. The, the commodification of people in that way really can, can mess with, with people. We spoke to students here at UNC who think athletes should be paid. The NCAA's answer to this call 
was NIL. And it's unlikely that they will pay athletes, but NIL is certainly a step in an interesting direction, and we'll have to see where it goes in the coming years. I don't know that enough athletes are getting paid with this new regulation for us to say that the exploitation of college athletes is like gone or not really an issue to be dealt with anymore. Um, you know, you see Caleb Love like posting Caleb Love and Leaky Black and posting all, all these like pre-written Instagram captions, and they're definitely getting paid. They got their little sponsorship deals or whatever, and that's great. Like I think. You're playing at just about as close as you get to a professional level. But if there's not money in your sport, if you're a swimmer, if you're a gymnast, if you're, like, you know, if, you're, if, you don't, if, you, if there's not enough money in your sport to really trickle down to you after it goes through the players and all the administrators, then, yeah, I think the problem still exists as it did a few years ago when, you know, athletes are putting their bodies on the line and are effectively getting nothing out of it. So. There are so many athletes who are not getting paid that they deserve that are students. It's like, oh, you're getting a free education. Well, you know, there are also scholarships and things that other students are getting with regards to academic merits that do the same thing. Whereas these people are like sort of abusing their bodies and putting in so much work and effort for the university that just doesn't get paid back to them, but instead goes to fill the university's pockets and coffers. The point I want to end on is that NIL stratifies glorification because it literally allows athletes to make money off of themselves, especially looking at how not all athlete sponsorships are even related to sports. This story of glorification is told in part two, and I encourage you to check it out to understand the full puzzle that is college athletics. I want you to leave today's episode with some questions. You know the drill. First, I want you to ask yourself if you give student athletes enough credit for the work they put in for our school. I want you to consider what you've learned about the plantation mentality and reframe your questioning of if all athletes care about academics to can all athletes care about academics? Do you make an effort to view your athlete classmates as actual people? And as always, how can your perspective serve those around you for good? Thank you for listening to Pitt Perspectives, part one on student athletes. Head over to part two to continue answering that question of if we collectively view athletes as actual people. If you are interested in contributing your voice to future topics, follow us on Instagram at Pitt Perspectives UNC and stay on the lookout for future recording dates and times. If we don't see you in part two, Maybe we will see you in the pit.